forgot to mention last week that we were at the halfway mark in our class. That was session seven on your schedule there. This is session eight today. So we are over the halfway mark. And we're in the portion that deals with interpretation. So we are talking about interpreting passages or coming to conclusions concerning whatever is in the biblical text. And again, the bottom line is we're seeking the author's intended or willed meaning. That's the bottom line for everything that we are doing. So the conclusions we come to, we are attempting to come to the same conclusions that the author intended to communicate. Last time we looked at that most important area of word studies. How do you come to conclusions concerning the meaning of words, individual terms. An author will select words, just like you and I. We select the words that we use as we try to communicate to one another. So those individual words that we select, we convey them hoping that you understand what we mean or what I mean in terms of trying to communicate using those particular words. And if I'm using a word that is very significant, then you want to make sure that you understand the meaning of that word. So also, the biblical authors selected words in their writing in order to communicate in the total context broader ideas, but if you have a distorted view of the individual words, particularly important words, then you'll have a distorted view of the the broader context that the author is trying to communicate. So, we talked about how do you come to an understanding of the author's intended meaning of the word. And what we did is we said that the main thing that we were looking for is to lay a foundation for what any individual writer may try to communicate We want to get a biblical range of meaning. In other words, how could that word possibly be used? And I mentioned that this is what uh, lexicographers do when they put together a lexicon or a dictionary, whether it's English or Greek or Hebrew. They will give you the range of meaning, in other words, the possibilities of how those words may be used. If you're looking at an English dictionary, how those words are used in the English culture. Range of meaning. So that is the foundation that you lay. And once you understand the possibilities or the range of how a word could be used, then you determine the meaning in its context. And that's the context that the author presents to you. That same word may be used differently in a different context, just like we use words differently. If I'm talking about computers, remember the little bit of an example that we used last time? If we're talking about computers and I say, move your mouse a little bit to the left, I'm not talking about a furry, small, mammalian creature. But if we're talking about, you know, I was near that rundown 
house and I saw a mouse run out from under it. You're not thinking of an electronic device in that case. You're thinking of a furry, probably a detestable little animal. So context determines meaning. So just the simple word mouse is used differently depending on the context. And that's true of every word. So context determines meaning. These two together are what we utilize in determining what an author intended to communicate in any given context. It's helpful. If you're having trouble isolating how he's using it right there, you might backtrack a little bit and you might uh, do some circles of context. And what I mean by that, when we talk about uh, classifying circles of context, the word that occurs in that particular context may also be used elsewhere in that same immediate context even. And it might be used in that same book. So the circles of context is how is this word used in Ephesians? And maybe in Ephesians it's only used two ways rather than all three of the ways. Maybe used only, or maybe just one way. And it's consistent in the book. So that's a circle of context. Another circle of context is how is Paul using this word in other letters besides Ephesians? How does Paul use it in Romans? How does Paul use it in Galatians? How does Paul use it in First uh, Timothy? And maybe he uses it in different ways in those passages. But you might also see some patterns. Maybe Paul tends to use it in this one particular sense and not in these other two. So that might help you to isolate how he's using it in the particular passage. And if you want to be complete, you can go beyond Paul. How does Peter use this word? How does John use this word? How did Jesus use this word? How does the New Testament use this word as opposed to the Old Testament? Those are circles of context. Now you can do some more work as well in coming to the meaning. Uh, this is the bottom line. You're trying to isolate the meaning in its context. Before we talk about verifying, let me talk about some other things. When you have a word that is used somewhat frequently in either New Testament or Old Testament, you have a lot of passages that you can draw on to see how the New Testament uses that word, and you can develop a certain amount of confidence that you've developed a pretty good range of meaning for that word. But what do you do when you come to a word that maybe is only used one or two times or maybe only three times. And maybe if it's used even three times, it's only used by one apostle or one writer. What do you do in a case like that? Because you really don't have enough material to develop a range of meaning, correct? Well, there's some other things you can do. You can, you can begin to probe beyond the New Testament and go beyond the New Testament to see how that word was used outside of the New Testament. Because what you're looking at is you're looking at how conceivably could have this word been used in the first century. How could have it been used? So by going outside of the New Testament, uh, you might be able to develop the range of meaning, especially if that word is only used one or two times. And 
by going beyond the New Testament, you might want to see how the word was used in classical time. Now, to do this, you may need a library, because you certainly probably don't want to buy all these books. But you can also, for example, you can see how was this word used in the classical period. So you want to get have access to some resources that gives you that information. There's a concordance by Lydell Scott. I'm sure it's there's one in this library and any theological library. That is a concordance of classical works, not necessarily biblical. It may include Old Testament uh, Septuagint uh, words because it's Greek. But Lydell Scott is pretty much the standard classical Greek concordance. So you can look it up there, and if you want to, you can go to those original writings, or you can trust their breakdown, and they will give you a listing of how that word is used. So you can develop the range of meaning from that. Uh, you can also go to the Septuagint. How was it used in the Septuagint? In other words, the Hebrews translated their Hebrew words into Greek, or the Greek language, and you can see how that word was used in the Old Testament in terms of the Greek, the, the Septuagint. There is a concordance that you can utilize that gives you the listing in the Septuagint. That's called uh, Hatch and Redpath, another concordance. And again, you may not want to buy that one, because most of these books are pretty expensive. But you can go to a library, and I'm sure that we have a copy here of... Hatch and Redpath, and you can see how the word is used in the Septuagint. You can also go to the writings outside of the New Testament in the Koine period, and there's a concordance called uh, Moulton and Milligan that deals with papyri materials and other writings of the Koine period or first century period, and you can look up that word there and see what they give you as a listing for how the word could have been used to develop a range of meaning. So those are helpful, especially for those words that are used very infrequently in the New Testament, and you have a hard time developing a range of meaning. But you can do the same thing for any word. You can use the, If you want to do a quite extensive word study, uh, you can see how it used in the classical period. Now you're beginning to develop how was it used over over time. And you might find a usage in the classical that's not used in the New Testament era, or vice versa. This is where you begin to see where theological words may take on a, or a theological significance apart from their everyday significance. Sometimes you can see that as well. So you can go to the classical, or you can go to the Septuagint, or you can go to the Koine period to see how those words were used in those periods of time. Now, it's not important to go beyond that, like the Byzantine or modern Greek, because that's not going to have any bearing on the, the Bible, the New Testament. So that's a complete word study. Well, we mentioned that in your exegesis, you've come to some conclusions now. You have a pretty good basis to be able to say, well, this is what I think Paul means by his usage of this particular word in this context. You've done a lot of work, but you want to take one more step. Remember in the scientific method, you want to begin to confirm or verify the work that you've done. 
In some ways, the the lexicon gives you some verification. Somebody else did this word study. This is what they came up with. You may agree with them or you may disagree with them. Uh, You can also go to word studies. There's a lot of word studies. This is where uh, books like Vines, Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words comes in. Are you familiar with Vines? Okay. All Vines has done is he's just done word studies and he's published it. But he's recognized and he's done good work. So you can look up yours in Vines and if you've done good work, you're going to find out that your work is probably comparable to what Vines did. And it'll serve to verify what you've done. Or uh, maybe you, you in Vines, maybe you say, oh, I, I didn't see that. I didn't see that slight distinction. Now Vines has kind of added to your understanding. So you found another category here, another usage. And now you can go back. Uh, could Paul have been using this word in this sense? And maybe not. Or maybe you missed it. Maybe uh, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the sense in which Paul was using it in this context. But now you have begun to verify the work that you've done. See what we mean by verification? This is like the testing stage in the scientific method. You can do the same thing with word studies. Is that clear how to do a word study? Now, this is a complete original word study. In actual practice, you can abbreviate at different stages... Sometimes I will do a word study by simply just looking it in the concordance without even jotting down a lot of categories. Kind of a quick review, depending on your time. But if you want to do a complete word study, uh, this is pretty much the procedure. So I want you to get this down, and when you do that assignment, I want you to reflect, at least show me that you have done the work. You don't need to necessarily copy all the verses. But what I do want you to do is to develop a range of meaning. So you have one, two, three, four, however ways that word is used and how you see it used. It's used in this literal sense to buy or to purchase in a commercial sense like I did on that word study. Secondly, you should give several examples or all of them if it's not used that frequently. And then under number two, the same thing. Number three, same thing. Four, you know, those distinct usages. See what I'm saying? And then go that next step. How is it used in that particular context that is mentioned in that particular assignment? And when you do your exegetical work, how is it used in the context of that passage you've selected? It can take time, and it's not an easy thing, depending on the number of usages but it's extremely valuable. Usually, after I've done a pretty complete word study, I have a lot of confidence that I have a handle and an understanding of that not only that word, but how that particular author has used that word in that particular context. Because I can give a defense. I can show, you know, this is how this word is used similarly in other places as well. And I usually have a lot of confidence in that. And by the way, that in itself is a valuable study just in understanding a lot of biblical words, understanding especially if they're theological. And by the way, you can do the same thing to do a a word study on a theological word or a theological topic. It will begin with a basic word study of the words that are used for that theological idea. It's extremely valuable. So we develop meaning primarily 
from usage. That's developing the range of meaning. Looking specifically at the context. Context determines meaning. Not etymology. Etymology can be helpful, again, in the cases where you don't have a lot of usages of that word, where it only occurs one one or two times. Etymology may be helpful, but be careful. It's got limitations. You can look up synonyms. In the case of the word to redeem, a word that is a synonym with agorazo would be lutrao. Two different words. And if you do a word study on lutrao, you will find that it has its own range of meaning, but there's some overlap. So on that example that I gave you, I did word studies on at least uh, one other synonym there, and I show the beginning of a word study on the third one there, at the very bottom of your sheet. So to do a word study on synonyms would be useful. There are common mistakes that students often make, not just students, well-established Bible teachers and commentators sometimes make these mistakes in doing word studies. And you see them crop up in preaching and teaching sometimes. First one is a kind of a long word. I don't know how to simplify it, but this is the way that it's described. It's called illegitimate totality transfer. Long phrase there. Essentially what that is, is after you've done all of this work, you have the temptation to now dump this whole thing (laughs) to the audience that you're teaching or preaching or uh, dealing with. And the mistake is to read all of those meanings into that word in in most of the context that you find it. That's a mistake. Do you remember the author is assigning a particular meaning in a particular context. So that word doesn't carry all of that meaning with it in every context. Even though you develop this full range, sometimes the temptation is is to dump the whole thing in every context where you find it. That's a huge mistake. And sometimes in preaching and teaching, if we don't make it clear, we're explaining how the word can be used, but uh, you want to make it clear, this is how it's used here in this context. The audience can uh, sometimes think, well, this word means this in every context and it has all this full meaning. And we don't use words that way when we communicate and neither did the biblical authors do that. I've got an example in my notes that I came across in one of the one of the books of a, a foreign student who heard the the following phrase, and because they were not familiar with English, they didn't understand the meaning of a, a particular word in this sentence. The sentence is: "The patient had an acute pain in her knee." This foreign person didn't know what the word "acute" meant. Now, you probably understand what it means. Well, if you do a word study on it in our culture, in geometry, acute refers to an angle less than 90 degrees. In music, acute has a high-pitched sound. It can also describe an accent mark in some language. In objects, it refers to a sharp point. But in this sentence... 
what's the use of giving all of those senses to this foreigner? All you're going to do is just fill their minds with useless information. All they want to know is, what does it mean when a patient has an acute pain in her knee? And all you need to do is tell them what that word acute means is they have a very sharp, very definite pain in that knee. has nothing to do to, with angles, has nothing to do with accent mark, has nothing to do with any of those other things, because that's all they're interested in. So in preaching and teaching, we don't want to kind of just flood the audience unless it's useful with all of the meanings and confuse them and make them think that that word means that in every context. That's what illegitimate totality transfer is trying to describe. That's a mistake. A second mistake is called the root fallacy error or mistake. What this does is misuses etymology. And for some reason, a lot of preachers like to use etymology. Now, I say it's limited, so be careful with that. This is where they utilize etymology to come to a decision concerning the meaning of a word. It may or may not mean that words are used differently and not necessarily tied to the history and development or origin of a word. So be careful with etymology. Sometimes we read into a passage the dominant meaning, and this is a mistake if that was not the intended meaning. Some words, and the word that I gave you as an example there, agorazo, the dominant meaning, at least in terms of its usage, is that literal sense. But there's also a few usages where that literal sense is not the usage in those contexts. So don't read the dominant sense into every passage. Just because it occurs 90% of the time in such a way doesn't mean that it occurs that way in every context, so be careful. A good example of that is the word sozo. Do you know what uh, the Greek word sozo is translated? To save. To save, it's the verb to save. has the idea of salvation. And sometimes we look at every usage and think of that word in terms of that one-time past experience of salvation. And I would say the majority of the usages of the word sozo in the New Testament is that past tense sense. But there are some usages in the New Testament where it's talking about a future salvation and it uses the word sozo. So there's an aspect of salvation that is is future that hasn't been accomplished yet. So when the word to be saved or the verb to be saved is used, don't automatically read into it the dominant meaning. In fact, it's used also in some context in a present tense sense as well. Ongoing salvation. I won't get into the, all of those usages, but that's an example. Fourthly, there's called a mistake called semantic anachronism or semantic obsolescence. What this means is what you want to do is avoid reading a late use back into an earlier use. We can go back to the word ecclesia. From the New Testament, that word has acquired the theological meaning that we were talking about of uh, the body of Christ or the gathering of an assembly of true believers. Well, when it occurs in the book of Acts, 
in Acts chapter 19, don't read that meaning into ecclesia in those verses because it's not used in that way, even though the word ecclesia occurs there. And certainly, don't read that post-Pentecost meaning back into the Old Testament when it's used in the Septuagint. The Old Testament doesn't speak of the church in the way that we think of it and the way it's used after the book of Acts and in the later stages of the book of Acts, or after Pentecost at least. So that's semantic anachronism, reading a meaning, usually a New Testament meaning, back into an Old Testament usage. But you can even find the same mistake within the the New Testament. Another thing to avoid is overemphasis. Don't overemphasize your word studies. You've done a lot of work in them, but don't uh, make them so important that the whole passage is overshadowed. Uh, What you want to really get at is how is the word used in this context, and you don't necessarily have to give them all of the five or six hours that it took you to get to that point. Now, sometimes it's useful, but we can also overemphasize the work that we've done. So these are common mistakes in word studies. And it's a great temptation because you've, you, you know, you've spent four or five hours on this word and uh, the temptation is now I've got to dump this whole thing on this audience that I'm preaching to. Let me give you one more example. This is so important. I, I think this is probably one of the most important stages of Bible study and it is so fruitful and it gives you so much that I want to make sure that you have a real clear idea of what we're doing. So let's let's kind of practice a word study or simulate one. What I've done already, I've given you one that's written out that you can take with you and look at it and see what I did and try and trace back. So that one is an example on paper there. Let's simulate what a word study might look like as you would go through one. And we're not going to do a complete word study, but enough so that you kind of get the idea. Now, let's say that you were interested in doing a word study on the Greek word namas. Do you know what that word means, namas? Law. Law. You have a little Greek background. A very important word, not only in the Old Testament, but it's an important word in the New Testament. And the Greek word is namas. And uh, in our word study, what's the first thing that we probably want to do? Let's say after we've already isolated that namas is the Greek word, that uh, we are looking at this particular Greek word, what's the first thing we want to do? See where it's used. See where it's used in the New Testament. You have a concordance. And let's say that we've chosen to do a word study and we have access to Englishmen, so we will use Englishmen's. Now we will look up all of the usages that it lists, because it's very complete. In fact, in most word, virtually every word, it's exhaustive, including every usage. There have been a few occasions where I've found one or two, in some cases, that were not included. But in general, pretty complete. So now I'm looking up every usage of namas, and let's just kind of jump in the middle of this word study 
and just brainstorm a little bit. And you've already come up with some categories as you've already, you've gone through the Gospels, you've gone through the book of Acts, and you've already isolated a few ways that the word is used in the New Testament. And can you think in your mind how this word is probably used just from what you know from the New Testament? How might the word law or namas be used in the New Testament? And I'll write them down on the board here. Categorizing of uh, the Jewish Old Testament, the law section. Okay, the the law section of the Old Testament, maybe the Pentateuch, is that... Okay, let's, so let's use that. Let's say we found some usages that seems to be specific to the Pentateuch or the first five books. And you mentioned maybe another category already there too. There might be a usage of the whole Old Testament. Okay? So you might have isolated a usage where it's used in reference to the whole Old Testament. Can you think of any other ways that it might be used in the New, New Testament? Uh, you, we're just we're jumping in the middle of this word study, and we've already found some categories. Maybe not all of them, but we've uh, isolated a few of them. Can you think of any others? Well, perhaps sometimes, just in the real generic sense, kind of along lines of the principle, of this the law governing something. Okay, good, good, good thought there. Just in the sense of like a principle, like a law of nature, maybe or a general. Principle. Let's use the word principle. I like that. Can you think of any others? How about maybe even uh, more specific than Pentateuch or Old Testament? Maybe even just referring to the Ten Commandments. Possibility? Maybe. Uh, this is a real good start. And we would have a few verses here, you know, Matthew something, maybe Luke, you know, a few examples, several of them. And we might have some examples there, example maybe one or two or something of these others. But now let's jump in, kind of in the middle, and turn to the book of Romans. And let's look at Romans chapter 2. We're just kind of progressing down the, down the concordance, and we've got to the passage in uh, Romans 2, and it says that there's a usage in verse 14. Would somebody read verse 14? In fact, it occurs there more than once in that verse. Go ahead, read it. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. Wow, how many times does it occur in that same verse? Three. Four. Okay, you observe that it occurs four times. That's an observation, by the way. The word law occurs four times in that verse. Is it used in the same way in all four of the times that it's used? Even in that same verse, it's not, right? What about the first usage? For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, how is that one used? Probably, probably like the Old Testament. Possibly. Yeah, that's a possibility. So we might put Romans 2.14 here. In the process of doing this, you may switch these around. You may you may change your mind on some, you know, but uh, at least begin to try to put them in a category. What about the second time that it's used there? Probably like the Ten Commandments. Mm, I don't see too much difference. So, if the first, do you see it? Do you see a distinction there? Uh, they seem to be used the same. So, if if I put it here, or if I put it here, then I think 
the second one is here. This is this would be the first one. Probably the second one as well. But if you see both of them as Ten Commandments, I would put both of them here. I, I don't see too much, unless you see something. Uh, is there something there that I'm missing? Just like in, in general, you know, do not lie, do not steal, you know, that kind of stuff. Seems to be the same thing. Okay? Maybe not. If you, if you can make the case, that's fine. Then the third time, not having the law, that's probably the same way, isn't it? I don't see too much of a distinction. But notice the next one. Are what? A law to themselves. So we have the first three here, at least in our initial stab at it. But the fourth one, this one might be number three. Yeah. So we have Romans 2.14. This is the fourth usage here. Uh, more in the sense of a, a principle to themselves or or maybe we might even come up with another one. In other words, probably it may be better over here. A moral code. Does that sound better? Okay, let's change our minds and put it over here. And we'll take it off of there. So they don't have the Old Testament. The Gentiles don't have the Old Testament, so they're not abiding by the Old Testament, but they're abiding by a moral code that seems to be within them. Okay, read verse 15. We, we have a couple of usages there. These are next on our list of concordance usages. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Okay, they have, they show the work of the law. How is it used there? Actually, it's only used once in verse 15. Initial stab. Um, it could, it could still be, uh, the official written revelation, because it's the same to work of. Okay. Could, it's like a representation at some point. Probably the same as this one, so if we chose Old Testament, we could have maybe even chosen Pentateuch. It's not quite clear, but this one, Pentateuch is within this one, so we're on the right track, so I'd probably put 15 here as well. Now there may be some in between, but let's say we've isolated them, but skip to chapter 3 and skip down to verse 19. Read that one. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Okay, how's it used in verse 19? How many times does it occur there? Twice? Two times? Any distinction between the two? Doesn't seem like it to me, does it? No. It seems, uh, what? What's your first stab at it? Maybe the same thing, right? Okay, 319, uh, both 1 and 2. Okay, you want to read verse 20? Because by, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay, again, how many times? Two times there. Any difference there? Uh, it seems, I don't know, I don't see too much difference there. So let's put it in the same group here. How about 21? Uh, Levi, you want to read that one? Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Okay, two times in that, that verse. Do you see a slight difference between the two there? The first one, probably verse 21, probably fits here as well. But what about the second one in verse 21? Along with the little phrase, and prophets, that seems to narrow it. Mm -hmm. That one probably clearly is not 
the Old Testament in general, but what? Yeah, exactly. So I would put 321, the second usage, under there. So there is a slight difference there. The law and the prophets. So it's probably a reference to the Pentateuch. By the way, I should have pointed out, uh, let's, let's backtrack. Notice in chapter 2, uh, that 14 verse, that very that first one that we looked at. You notice, can you observe anything even in the English text there? There was a clue there that steered us of a difference of usage there. Look at the word itself. Did you notice capitalization? Did you make that observation? So that's an observation. The third, uh, actually the first three usages are capitalized, and the fourth one is not. That's an observation to make. That right away kind of clues you, at least the translators saw a distinction there, a distinction enough that they put lowercase in the fourth one. See what I mean by little observations? Same word, three capitalized and one not. Okay, well, what we're doing is we're identifying different things. Now, let's skip down. There's a few more in there, but let's skip down. Skip to verse 27 and 28. Whose turn to read that? Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. Okay, two times in 27. Did you notice anything on those two uh, usages? Are they capitalized? No. They're not capitalized. So even the translators see a distinction there. Is it you referring to the Pentateuch? Probably not, because it's not capitalized. It's probably not even uh, the Old Testament, because it's not capitalized. This is probably an example of this one here. 3.27 is an example of a principle. A principle of faith or a principle of law. And then verse 28, uh, I think similarly, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now that one's different. Works of the law, maybe Pentateuch, maybe Old Testament, maybe even possibly Ten Commandments. So we've isolated four distinct usages, and maybe possibly Ten Commandments as a fifth one. See what we're doing? And as you work through the rest of the New Testament, going through the rest of the book of Romans, and then uh, following that with 1 Corinthians, etc., as they're listed in your concordance, uh, you keep adding to these categories, and then you might even subdivide some of these categories if you see uh, slight differences with, within them. And you might come up with a list of seven, eight, nine, maybe different distinct usages that you might identify. But what you're doing is you're, you're developing the range of meaning, the way that that word could be used. Notice again, sometimes the same author can use the same term in even the same sentence and still have a different meaning. Same author, but he's seeming to intend something different, and certainly different in the same paragraph. So in this paragraph in chapter 3, we probably have at least three three distinct usages. Same author, same word, but at least three distinct usages. But you want to identify how is he using it. What did he intend in that context? That's what you want to do in doing the words.
Does that make sense? Well, you'll get to practice on a word yourself, uh, not only as part of the assignment, but probably a different word when you do uh, your your paper. So that's word studies, a very, very important exercise. But at this point, let's move on to the next area of interpretation. So word studies are very important. Equally important is the area of analyzing structure or structural analysis. You will spend the bulk of your exegetical work at this point doing structural analysis. So this is very important. This is also probably the most difficult part. I mentioned we consider word studies important because the very words are inspired. So also when it comes to structural analysis, what we want to do is ultimately understand what this passage is saying in terms of the structure. We're actually thinking God's thoughts after him. That's what we're attempting to do. The thoughts that God attempted to communicate, we want to rethink them as we read those passages that reveal those thoughts. So he is the ultimate author, and it's God's thoughts that we're ultimately after. Now they're communicated through the human authors, So we take what the human author has written down, and because of inspiration, uh, we understand that the Holy Spirit is behind the thinking that has gone through the minds of the original authors. So let's spend uh, the rest of our time today looking at structural analysis. I'm going to give you three procedures or three ways of doing grammatical analysis and each one is builds upon the other and for those of you that uh, don't have a lot of confidence and background in grammar as I did not what we will begin with is basic analysis what I call basic analysis and just to preface this if this is all that you can do even from the English text, then you have done perhaps 80-90% of the grammatical analysis that would be required in any given passage. So if you can do this, there's only a few little steps here, and I'll give you an example. If you can do basic analysis, you have the majority of the work that is needed in terms of understanding any given passage. So basic analysis involves, number one, always begin by isolating a complete sentence. We're going to work through Scripture sentence by sentence. So in isolating a complete sentence, you have to what? Begin with complete sentences. Know where it begins, know where it ends. And that's a pretty simple observation to make from the English text and even from the Greek text at least the versions that the Greek students use. The UBS text will break it down into sentences. So this is an important step. Don't forget that. Always start with one complete sentence. Secondly, 
identify, we're just going down the list of structural units. Secondly, identify the clauses. And when we say identify clauses, what do we mean? What do you look for first of all? Independent and dependent. In other words, but the first thing you're looking for, where do I find the independent clause? Every sentence by definition must have one at least independent clause. So look for that. Look first of all for the independent clause. And then you can identify any subordinate clauses. And there may not be any. If not, then it's a simple sentence. If there's one or more independent clauses, then it's called a compound sentence by definition. And if it's got an independent, well, it'll have an independent clause, but if it also has a dependent clause, then it's a complex sentence. If it has more than one independent clause and a subordinate clause, what do they, what do they call that? Or compound complex. Compound complex. So identify clauses. So this is pretty basic, but I'll show you why this is important in a moment. So step number two, identify clauses. Step number three, now in that first independent clause, you identify the subjects or subject and verb. If you have two of them, then there's plural subjects and verbs. But you'll have at least one subject and one verb by definition. You can't have an independent clause without a subject and a verb or at least an understood subject. Now, the Greek students also know that there might be an understood verb that if it's understood, it is usually to be verb, which is not uncommon in the Greek text. But it'll it'll have a subject and it'll have a verb, whether it's explicit or understood. If you can identify the subject and the verbs, that's the heart, that's the essence of the sentence. Everything in that sentence somehow relates to the subject and the verb. So you have a noun and a noun that is performing some action or some action is being performed on that noun, that subject. And then everything else just tells you something about that. In fact, all of the subordinate clauses will just be telling you something more about ultimately the subject and the verb. So if you want to get at the heart of what the sentence is communicating, you get at the subject and the verb of the independent clause. Everything else relates to that. That's why I say 80 to 90 percent of basic analysis basically tells you what the essence of that sentence is all about. So identify subjects and verb. And then fourthly, if there are any other grammatical issues or grammatical elements, then you can identify them as well. Once you identify the subject and verb of the main clause, then you want to identify the subject and verb of the dependent clauses as well. And they are dependent clauses by definition if they have a subject and a verb. 
If they don't have a subject and a verb, then they're something else. They're not a clause. And any other grammatical issues, you might have participles, you might have infinitives, you might have prepositional phrases. The more you can identify, the better a handle you're going to have on that sentence. And that's basic analysis. Four things. And if you can do those four things, you have a pretty good handle on what that sentence is saying. And then you just remind yourself everything else is just adding to what the subject and the verb are communicating. See how simple that is and how powerful that is. If you get at that, you basically get at the meaning communicated by that particular sentence. Then once you've gone through one sentence, then you just go to the next one. Then you uh, go through the sentences of the paragraph. Okay, that's basic analysis. Anyone not be able to do that? Okay. Okay, let's let's take a look. Yeah. Let's take a look at an example. Those of you that did some work in Acts chapter one, you made many observations on verse eight. Let's look at the next verse, which begins another paragraph in chapter one. And here is a complete sentence. How do you know that? Well, the first word starts with a capital letter, and what's the next thing you look for to identify the end of that sentence? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you got the first word begins with a capital letter, and then the last word followed by a period. So you have a complete sentence, right? Now, what's the next thing we want to do? Look for the clauses. Try to identify the clauses. And in identifying the clauses, what's the first thing you're looking for? No, no. Independent. Independent. Okay, dependent. Okay. And usually the way I do it is I just start at the very beginning and just keep working until I find the independent clause. So I'll just start, and after he had said these things, that's probably, that looks like a clause, right? And after he said these things, is that independent or, or dependent? It's dependent because of the after. So that's not the independent clause. He was lifted up, doesn't have a comma there, but that's probably a clause there. What is that? Dependent. That's independent. Okay. You might just stop there and start looking at it, but let's just follow through to identify all of the clauses before we even break this one down. Okay, so we've identified an independent clause. Starts with a dependent clause, followed by the independent clause, and then we have, while they were looking on comma, that looks like a clause, right? What kind of clause is that one? Again, dependent. It has a little time word, while. We have a time word that introduces the first one and a time word that introduces the second one. And what do we have after the comma? And a cloud received him out of their sight. Uh, is that another clause or is that just a phrase? Another independent. So we have a sentence with two independent clauses. We've identified them. 
and two dependent clauses. So what kind of a sentence do we have here? It's not so important that you understand the names of these, but just so that kind of helps you here. Compound complex. Very good. So we have a compound complex sentence. Yes. Yeah. It's certainly compound because it has two independent, but it's also compound complex because it has at least one subordinate clause. And in this case, it has two. We isolated a complete sentence. We've identified the clauses. And here's the independent clauses. He was lifted up and a cloud received him out of their sight. You could eliminate these two dependent clauses and this will make perfect good, perfectly good sense. He was lifted up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Two basic ideas. That's the heart of everything in that. The after he said these things just gives a little time thing while they were looking on, just adds some more time element things. But these are the major things that this sentence is trying to communicate. Uh, he was lifted up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So you have an and there that connects those two. Now what do you look for? Well, you have the two subordinate clauses that we talked about. Now what do you look for? And you start subject verb of, I would start with this independent clause. He was lifted up. What's the subject? He, verb. It's not clear. It's was at least, and it could be was lifted in the English. Either way, you're on the right track. So everything the first part of the sentence has to do with is somebody being lifted up. Got that? Second independent clause. What's the subject? Cloud. Very good. If you want to include the article, a cloud, that's fine. Verb? Received. So everything in this sentence has to do with somebody being lifted up, whoever the he is, and a cloud receiving something. That's the heart and essence of that sentence. So you're identifying subject and verb. He was lifted up. Cloud received. There you go. Anything else you want to observe in there? You might want to break down the subordinate clauses. What's the subject of the first subordinate clause? He. Whoever this he is, we're going to have to do some work on it to identify the he. And the verb? Had said. Okay, he had said. So it's adding an idea of whoever this he is. He's lifted up after he's saying these things. So you got the subject and the verb there. Subject of the second dependent clause. They were looking. So we have somebody else here. They, who are the they? So we have a he and a they. And it's just telling us uh, that somebody is looking on to this lifting up idea. And then after that, this cloud received him out of their sight. So you've basically done 80-90% of structural analysis there. What about other grammatical issues? Anything else in there? Uh, you might think in terms of after... 
what things is he speaking of? This probably goes to what we had before there. The he goes back to what's spoken of before, at least verse 8. This he goes back. These are pronouns that refer back to somebody probably in verse 8 and maybe even before that. The they probably goes back to verse 8 and earlier. You've got a prepositional phrase here, out of their sight. That's essentially your basic analysis there. See how simple that is? So you've done a compound complex sentence. There's a lot of sentences in the Bible that are simple sentences. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the Apostle Paul. And and by the way, the more complex a sentence, the more crucial is the need to do a structural analysis. That's basic analysis. Now let me just introduce the next one, and then we'll spend more time. And, and essentially, I've already introduced it with giving you this example on the board there. The next one is just one step more complex or more uh, detailed than the first one. So that was basic analysis. And like I said, if that's all you do, you want to try to at least do that. But you also want to give a, a shot at what's called mechanical layout if you want to. And this is just, uh, this is that other sheet. In fact, I have a whole sheet there that illustrates an Ephesians passage there. So you might pull that sheet out if you don't already have it out there. Mechanical layout is attempting to visually lay out a sentence or a series of sentences so that you can visualize it graphically, a little bit like what I did here with basic analysis. So mechanical layout involves a rewriting of the text in a form that will reveal the grammatical structure. And we'll go over the details of it. What, I, what you might do is, between now and then, is review that sheet, and we'll go into the details uh, next time. And you also notice I also have the most detailed way of doing grammatical analysis, and that's called diagramming. And when we get to that, I'll, uh, I'll show you the, the advantages of that. Personally, if I, I'm going to exegete a passage, I will diagram it. And I will diagram it in the original language. Now, what I've given you is an English diagram on that sheet there. But it'll force you to make grammatical decisions for every word. The mechanical layout will help you and force you to make decisions about the main elements of, of a sentence. And I have found this exercise to be the most important in terms of laying out a passage for me, the most important step in my entire exegetical procedure. I have found it extremely valuable. So we'll take a look at that next next time, and hopefully I can encourage you to at least make a stab at it.